there is a presidential primary debate this week that people tell me is important, so I will preview it. And also, I want to talk about the effect of smartphones on your marriage. We'll do that and a lot more on this week's Corey Act Show. today's the radio business when I was in it what I just did is called hitting the post when you stop talking at the exact right moment for the music to drop or as you're leading up to a song if you happen to be a music DJ you're giving introduction right before the singer starts to sing you drop out a beat before I just hit the post for the first time in a long time and I think that could be a good indicator for the next 30 or 40 minutes and the quality that might be there. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, amongst many other things. I get to serve the incredible people of Beachwood Church uh, as their pastor for teaching. That's what I was trying to say. At 10.30 on Sunday mornings, we meet. You are invited if you are without a church home in the upstate of South Carolina. South Carolina just overtook Georgia for the third fastest growing state. It is now number one Florida. Number two, get this, Idaho for fastest growth, 22 over 2023. Uh, excuse me, over the last 12 months, and now South Carolina, number three. Not all that growth is up here. It might surprise you that the fastest growing part of the state is no longer Charleston. It's no longer upstate. It's no longer Rock Hill. For a minute, Rock Hill with Charlotte was the fastest growing. Myrtle Beach, the fastest growing part of the state, but still a lot of those folks land up here in the upstate. And uh, I don't have a radio presence anymore, but those of you who listen to me are often in the upstate. You can point people our way. Beachwood Church would love to have them. I have a lot, to, a lot I want to do today. We'll finish the show like we typically do with our weird law or hard to interpret. I shouldn't say that. Hard to interpret biblical laws. I want to talk about uh, a, a local church and a big problem they have pr- produced on social media, how smartphones affect marriage, but we will start with debate preview here on the Corey Truax Show. You can find me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. Let's go. These things matter, I guess. Who runs the federal government matters. Ultimately, uh, a goal I'd like to see is we just we care about it less because it actually is functionally less important. Because we return power to where it's supposed to be. You know, the even locally here. I bet uh, if you live in Easley, like I do, you may not know there's a May oral race in November, and there's big, big life. I hate to say life altering. But life-affecting consequences. There is a candidate who is all about all these subdivisions and all this development. I'm kind of that way. I can be convinced otherwise. My wife has actually done a pretty good job of convincing me otherwise. I like that everyone's moving here. I love that Easley's getting big. You know, there's the old economic uh, axiom that says industry brings residential, residential brings commercial. Excuse me, industrial brings residential residential brings commercial so as you get industrial big jobs people build residential property houses and as people start living there you get commercial you get cool stuff you get to have now there's two starbucks and easily i don't even like starbucks but we, we get all kinds of you know you get the silos you get fun things because if people move in folks want to bring their businesses and it's a uh, like this virtuous circle now, easily, for example, we don't have industry. We have, we're a service economy. We, we are a place where people live. You don't work here, you just stay here. We're a bedroom community. And one candidate is saying, more, 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 more. That's the plan. Build, build, build. Build as many houses and subdivisions as you can. Keep bringing people, and that will bring commercial stuff to do. It's going to be a good place to live. Two candidates have stepped up to go, stop it. Your roads are clogged. You, you don't have the space 
stop giving out permits, stop building for some time. That's a actual real functional conversation to have. And I'd love for more of those conversations to be had at the local level, but we all care about who the president is. So, all right, let's do this. This is what I used to do. I'm putting my taking my theological hat, not off, but kind of moving it to the side and trying to add on a political hat. I want to give you some context for what's going to happen on Wednesday night, or if you're listening later, what happened Wednesday night. This is an odd, first time in my life, an odd type of debate where they're ultimately not going to be debating over who should be the nominee. The person who's going to be the nominee, former President Trump, won't be in the room. And there's a, there's a weird context for these guys, because what they're all actually arguing, they're not going to say it out loud, and too many people won't say it out loud, is what they're actually all arguing is, next July, when the actual convention meets, where the technical legal process of having a nominee for the Republican Party, when that takes place, if something has happened to Trump, if he has the legal troubles have caught up to him and it appears he's going to really have to pay some consequences, or something something has transpired that even though he won the votes, because listen, he's going to win the votes, he's going to win the, de- the delegates, that's going to happen, then if something happens to him in July, I want to be the person that replaces him. I want to be the heir apparent. So they're all running for second place in case something happens in July. Because if nothing does happen between now and July, I'm yeah, I'm telling you, he's he's gonna win 40, 45% of the total votes over the next if he may not he may get to fifty percent over the, the totality of the primary. I think I can prove that to you in part. I mean, there's lots of ways to do it, but CBS News poll came out uh, this is two or three days ago showed that Trump voters, that's only about 40% of the Republican Party, say they trust Trump more than their family, religious leaders, or anyone else. So meaning this, people like me, or people with a much bigger audience than mine, so go with Trump skeptical people like, uh, what's his name, Ben Shapiro, or there's a Matt Walsh, I guess, some of these guys that are not big fans. They can be saying true things about the fact that Donald Trump will lose a general election. He will lose. He is a loser. He loses a lot. That's his that that's what he's done. He got lucky one time because Hillary Clinton was so unpopular and no one thought he could win. And so it was a historic low turnout. He got lucky one time and he's been a monumental loser ever since. They can say all that. It's true. And what this poll shows is there's a giant check of people that just look at them and say, I don't believe you. You're a liar. Only Donald Trump is telling me the truth. How about, uh, I'll give you some of these. Uh, let me find one of these that was super discouraging. Uh, among Trump supporters, 71% say Trump always tells them the truth. That same question, do you think conservative media figures tell you the truth? Only 56%. Get this, do you think your religious leaders tell you the truth? Only 42%. So for people who say, I'm a big Trump person. Of that group, only 42% say, my pastor is telling me the truth. 56% say, Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, Ali Beth Stuckey, uh, other people on the right, 56% of the time they're telling me the truth. But 71% of the time, Donald Trump is telling me the absolute truth. So I'm just telling you, there's no convincing somebody. You're You're not going to change anyone's mind. 
there, I'm not even going to try this time. I'm just giving you some preview. I won't do this a lot during this period. I'm not going to try to convince anybody to not be a Trump person. It's just, I don't know. It just seems like folly when 71% of them say, I know you're lying to me. Only he tells me the truth. Only he is the source of truth. Then what are you going to do? Just I'm, I'm kind of done with it. So I am convinced he's, he's going to win the votes. So what they're actually all arguing is if something bad happens to him in one of these indictments or, I don't know, he's old, he gets sick or something, uh, something that causes him not to be able to fulfill being the nominee and then him losing, because listen, he will lose, then they're arguing over who should be that guy. Now, as for what should happen then, uh, I hate hate how it's going to go. The way it's going to go is... uh, they're going to bloodbath each other. I suspect that's the case. Um, you know, Ron DeSantis has been the, the number two guy for a long time, so he's probably going to take a lot of fire from every direction. I suspect one candidate will do nothing negative. Tim Scott has been the senator from South Carolina. His, his, whole, uh, his whole veneer has been just po- happy optimism. I suspect he will do no attacking. But, yeah, I expect DeSantis to go after probably his biggest competitor right now, the Ramaswamy guy, and that everyone to go after DeSantis, and they're all going to bludgeon each other. And then Chris Christie is going to stand there at the end with his 1% and say bad things about Donald Trump. Uh, it's going to be uh, – I'm not going to watch it, but I suspect that's what's going to happen. It's just a lot of attacking each other. Um, well, what should happen, like the thing that would be good, is making the case, primarily three things. We need to win. You need somebody who – so somebody who has proven that they can win. For I mean, Ron DeSantis has the best case for that, but like people like Nikki Haley can make an argument for winning. They were effective winners. I mean, Haley's story actually is interesting as a winner. The, the campaign as a minority woman in a Republican Party dominated by older white men in the South, who overcame Henry McMaster and Gresham Barrett for the nomination to to governor. It's actually quite impressive to be able to compete that way. I mean, winning that general election here wasn't a big deal, but she has that argu- She has something of that argument. The winning argument should be big. And then just two others. The uh, you-, you can't do these other two unless you win. So the argument is, I can win. Trump's a loser. Trump loses. Actually, now I am tempted. Just I won't do it. The- I will not do it during this campaign. But I'm just going to look up one quick thing that I think is of uh, this, I'm doing this live, so sorry guys. While I, I look this up one-handed, I just saw some data a couple places. I pulled it together into a word document, and here it is. Okay, here's what I mean. Tr- uh, in 2020, t- 2020, Trump won Iowa by eight percent. Two years later, Kim Reynolds, the governor, won it by nineteen. Over ha- oh, so she over doubled them. That's a Republican governor. These are I'm, just, I'm giving you Republicans who outdid Trump. Uh, Trump won Florida by three and a half percent in 2020. DeSantis won it by 19 uh, percent. Trump lost Georgia. Brian Kemp won by eight percent. Trump lost Virginia by 10 percent. Glenn Youngkin won it by two. Trump lost New Hampshire by seven percent. Their governor, Sununu, won it by 15 and a half. Uh, Trump lost Arizona. Republican governor won re-election there uh, by 15%. Do, uh, in Ohio, Trump won it by 8. 
but their Republican governor there, he won re-election by 25%. All the way around, there's every number to show you. He's a loser, he's a loser, he's a loser. He loses. So that's what they should be arguing. He's a loser. I'm a winner. And if something happens to him, you need to pick a winner. And then after that, it's inflation is hard. People are paying $700 a month more for their bills and trying to do that math in my head. Is that 7000 Is that eight like $8,000 a year more? I mean, no one has got an $8,000 a year raise, right? This is brutal. Inflation is brutal. And we want to take crime and the border seriously. Those are your issues. That's what they should do. Probably not going to do that. I suspect they're going to try to bludgeon each other. Two more thoughts on this. We'll get out of politics because I don't like it. It's interesting to me that this kind of campaign, the uh, I'll be the backup plan campaign, is also happening on the left. That's what Gavin Newsom is doing. It's why he's challenged Ron DeSantis to a debate. I hope they do it. That'd be very healthy for the country. The, uh, the idea there being in July... The Democrat Party also has to technically nominate. They have to get together and go through the legal process of nominating. And by July, you never know with an 82-year-old, 80-year-old man, whatever he is, something, some bad thing happens with his health or it just becomes clear he cannot continue. There's the shadow campaign uh, to, to get there in July. It could be one of the weirdest political seasons we've ever had. The last time a convention had to choose its nominee was... Right after Nixon's, yeah, that would have been 72, 74, one of the, I think 72, where there had to be a brokered convention for the Democrats and chose, I don't remember who Nixon slaughtered in that second one, uh, I think it was Humphrey. In any event, in any event, it could be two brokered conventions, we haven't had one in, I guess that's 50, well, that's a lot of years, 60 years, and it could be two at the same time. Final thought on this, it's interesting to me that this could also be the first third-party election of my lifetime to, to really make some inroads. A, a third party, a non-Republican or Democrat party, has not won a state, I think it's 1924, if I recall. Yeah, that's 24. That would have been the Dixiecrats. They would have won some southern states. Maybe Wallace won in 20 or 32. So it's been a long time since a third party has, like, call it 100 years, since a third party has won a state. There's an argument here, if it ends up being these two old men, that there could be a, a real third-party run. Ross Perot ran in 92 and won almost 20% of the vote. I think it was 18% of the vote nationally. It wasn't enough to win any one state, but can you like, hold, hold to that real quick? Almost one-fifth of Americans showed up and voted for a third party. If you're ever going to have that ability, it would be in this election. And I'd like to see anything that breaks the two-party system, anything that weakens them would be great. All right, that's your political preview of what's happening and where we are. I feel feel gross, and so let's get out of it. Let's do something way more important than politics. Before you ever get to uh, votes, before you ever get to a government and states and federal governments, that original government is the one closest to you, and I'm not talking about the mayor's race. I'm talking about in your own home. Marriage. This is your first governance in your home, and I saw some numbers here that are disturbing, and I have a, a an oddly variant audience because I came from talk radio. I was able to bring some over 60 people over to podcasting who have never never heard of podcasting, didn't know how to access it. Uh, I brought some of them over. I wish I could have brought more of them over, and then uh, I had this younger group. I'm so grateful. A lot of young dudes in North Greenville listen, so let me 
say to the older group and the younger group and everyone in between, you're looking to be married, you are married. Here's a threat to the single most important institution in the world, marriage, that we need to talk about. Because if we do not have good marriages, it doesn't matter how the vote goes. If, if you don't have good marriages, your the, the other institutions are all going to falter because marriage has faltered. We have to have good marriages where men are playing their role, women are playing their role, loving each other. So here is something to consider. According to data from an Institute of Family Studies survey, it's 2,000 married couples, so that's 4,000 people between the ages of 18 and 55, 37% of a married American say their spouse is on their phone uh, is on their phone often when they would prefer to talk or do something together as a couple. I'm actually a little surprised that it's only 37%. That's too much. It is too much that almost four out of 10 married people will be sitting with their spouse wanting to say something, but not wanting to be rude and interrupt whatever death, death scrolling that they are doing. About Here's back to the study. 44% of married couples under 35 said their spouse spends too much on their phone. Wow. You know, that. I think 100% of people spend too much time on their phone. I wonder if that low number, 44%, is because that person being asked the question knows they spend more time than their spouse does. It'd be quite hypocritical to say, yeah, I think my spouse spends too much time on their phone. And if you compare, if you compare screen times, theirs is higher. At least a couple other notes here. Uh, from the story, couples struggling with phone addiction, struggling with phone addiction. That is, what a euphemism. Couples without the self-control to put their phone down are less likely to go out on dates. Uh, in light of their findings, researchers urge couples to establish rules about the use of smartphones. That's good. Actually gets into uh, communication, sex life, going out on dates. Like there's, There are negative correlations everywhere with people who are on their phones too much. I have very little to say just except this. Now you just recognize if it's not already a problem in your house, it could be. The people who design these things, your smartphone, your Android, your Apple, your iPhone, they don't care about your marriage. They have zero interest in it being healthy. All right? They just want you looking at your phone. That's all they want. I tell you what your spouse wants. They often want you looking at them. I can tell you what your kids want. They want your attention. And you might say, well, that sounds like a sacrifice. I enjoy my phone. Okay, we'll grow up and sacrifice. That's what we do. We put our phone down. This is a, um, this, this is a principle I have in my house. I don't care what I'm doing. If I'm in the house and my wife comes home from something, I am going to stop what I am doing, and I'm going to go where she is and immediately give attention to her. Sometimes she wants to talk. Most of the time she does. I will stand in the kitchen. We'll talk as long as she wants because whatever I was doing, whatever I was looking at, it's not as important. And now you you have kids. Listen, I, I've seen it now enough. I, I don't know how you all do it. I don't know how you have happy marriages and raise kids at the same time. Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine on you. I pray for you guys. It's hard. I had some very wise person recently say to me who had a kid the hardest part of having a kid was being married at the same time. I found that profound because they had been married for quite a few years together and could always give each other undivided attention. And when you have a kid, they were saying, well, now I can't. I, I cannot be my wife's top priority for now. I, I, she can't be my top priority for now because the baby's everyone's top priority. Now, and babies grow up and the dynamic changes. 
I'm sh- I'm sure that happens. I actually encourage that person that way. The baby gets everyone's attention 24-7 era doesn't go on forever. And you can move on to other dynamics. That takes int- intentionality, of course. But one of the things that's causing problems in household is your phone. And so I'm just putting out a warning here. Be careful of it and get control of it. Whatever that whatever that is for you, there's there's now tools to monitor your screen usage. Set a goal. Like this week, I, I failed at mine. I set a goal to get my screen time usage under two, uh, two hours per day. Apple gives me a report on Sunday mornings. I got to two and a half hours. I am going to toot my own horn here. I am less than a lot of the population. I'm like a bottom 10% in screen usage for my age group. But I want to get it under two. That's going to be be my goal. I've had in the past weeks, I mean years ago, over five hours a day average. That's too much. It's not good for your brain. We need other stimuli. And I want you to know it's a threat to your marriage. Uh, your phone doesn't need your attention. Your entertainments and the frivolousness of whatever is on your phone, it's not as important as your marriage. Uh, So go after it. Go after getting a hold, taking care of uh, your smartphone usage. And I think that's one of the good, one of the good rules of thumb is if you are in the same room, and if you're not in the same room and a spouse comes in the room, if you're on your phone, stop being on your phone. Acknowledge them. Ask them something. See what they need. It doesn't matter what you're doing on your phone. You might even be doing something the house needs. You're ordering something on Amazon you need. But if they walked into the room, a human being that you loved walked into the room, stop. I've made that rule in my house. If, if we're not in the same place and I'm doing something on my phone, she's doing something on the phone, and we come to one another, all right, let's, let's acknowledge another human here and not be controlled by our devices. There's, there's other tools, by the way, that I think are helpful. You can put your phone on grayscale where you will take one of the big weapons of the big tech companies out of their hands. One of the ways they have found to keep you on the devices is uh, color transfer, color translation, and color changes. You can put your phone on grayscale. Pretty easy to do. Just Google how to do it. And it's so much easier to take your eyes off your phone because it becomes less compelling and less interesting. So there you go. All right. Phones are threatening marriages. I want you to be aware of it and to take to take action on it. A couple other stories I want to do before we are finished today, including at the end of the show, getting into one of the challenging laws in the Bible. We've been doing that a lot lately, getting into the law and how uh, those things have been practiced or how we can practice biblical thinking and law in the new era. I've used the example a few times. There's odd laws about being gored by an ox and your property or your person being injured because of what happens to someone's ox and how they have to pay recompense. And you might not have had that happen because we don't spend a lot of time around oxes, but you might have been gored by the proverbial ox, the modern day ox. And I think the analog for that would be you've been hurt in a car accident or someone you love has been hurt in a car accident or hurt at work. Those accidents and injuries have serious consequences. You come away injured, the bills start piling up, there are lost wages while you're hurt, and while you're just trying to feel better and recover, you're also trying to navigate a very difficult and complex situation. I don't want you to feel helpless about that. I want you to know there are people to help you and to make it right. So don't be intimidated. There are people there to help you, and the person I want to point you towards is a personal friend of mine. His name is Samuel Harms. I highly encourage doing this first. Google him, Samuel Harms, H-A-R-M-S, as in stay out of harm's way. You can find him there. You can also find him at 864-666-6666. Samuel Harms is an attorney at law. 
And these things you might get into, being gored by the modern-day ox, those kinds of accidents uh, at work or in-car accidents, you need someone on your side to work through it, and he can do it with you. Samuel Harms is here in Greenville. He's near Woodruff Road. It's on 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. His number is 6666. I'm sorry, that's wrong. It's 666-6666. So if you have been hurt in a car accident, been gored by the modern-day ox, you have been hurt at work, give him a call. Samuel Harms is there to help you. Don't try to navigate it alone. His name is Samuel Harms, 666-6666, or Google him, and he will be of uh, be of assistance in that situation. Two more stories I want to do today before we are done. One, I came across my Facebook feed, and I was annoyed at it at first, and then I read, some, I read further, and I, I got a little bit less annoyed, but still annoyed. It's from Clemson First Baptist, or they're called First Baptist of Clemson. And I'm going to read to you a good bit here. There's a rule in broadcasting that you don't read, but podcasts change things. The headline on it was, if this is wrong, I don't want to be right. One of my most, one of the phrases that most annoys me. If something is wrong, you should not, if if something is wrong in doing it, you shouldn't want to do it. I understand people use it ironically. It's just not one of my favorite phrases, especially from a church. Then I found this church has been off the rails for a long time, has actually been removed from the Southern Baptist Convention years ago for ordaining women as, uh, as I believe, pastors and elders even several years ago. But here's them flaunting uh, this. This is six days ago on their Facebook page. I'll read you some of this. I'm going to leave out a name because I don't have a big audience, but I also don't want to cause, I don't, I don't want to cause any undue attention to somebody. It says, uh, this past Sunday, our congregation gathered to worship God and ordain our children's minister, and then it gives her name. It's a very female name. Um, We ordained her to the ministry of the gospel. It was a service of praise and thanksgiving. The service was a testimony to this woman's servant heart and her love of affirmation, uh, excuse me, and to the love and affirmation displayed by our congregation as we laid hands on this woman and spoke blessings to her. Uh, It was truly a celebration of God's calling, of the priesthood of the believer, one of the fundamental tenets of Baptist beliefs. All righty, two other paragraphs here. I really just want to break down their thinking and their arguments because it's bad. It's dark thinking. It's bad thinking. It's not clear. This ordination of a woman to the eldership that they just had. Not because this woman is not capable, but because God gives specific roles and the role of elder, not not given to every man because not every man is capable. It's not about it's not about capability and ability. It's just about role and calling in God's design. Back to their post. There has been a lot of debate recently among Southern Baptists about whether women should serve as ordained ministers. Yeah, we have debated that. We did a pretty good job making it clear uh, that's not the case. Continuing with their post at the recent convention in New Orleans, the answer to this question was an emphatic no. The convention even, even voted to dismiss one of its largest churches. This debate or misguided distraction has been a topic for Southern Baptists. So, no, definitely not. Not a distraction. It is fundamental to uh, faithfulness to Scripture. It, it's, not a second, it's not a secondary thing. I, I, of course, think I have some brothers and sisters in the faith that I will spend eternity with that have this profoundly wrong. But this is a, a fundamental question of Bible. Do we, are we going to follow exactly what the Bible says, or are we going to be influenced by other things? 
going back to their post. Uh, for almost 50 years, many of our Baptist brethren, and sadly some of our sisters, have focused on who should share the gospel. Uh-huh, okay, wait. On who should share the gospel, rather than being about the mission of the calling, all the mission and calling of all people to go forth and share the good news of Jesus. You've got a category error there, Clemson, or First Baptist Clemson. We are on uh, the side that, yes, everyone should share the gospel. Your female members should share the gospel with their family, with their kids, at work, if they have jobs, if they're, if they're at home, with, again, their kids. They should share the gospel on social media even. Like, there's, yeah, all kinds of gospel sharing. Do you think that gospel sharing is only for ordained elders? You just change the subject. You're talking about ordained eldership, and then you change the subject to just generally sharing the gospel. I don't know if you're being dishonest, disingenuous, or just unintellectual, but only those two options. You opened with one topic, switched to another one in the middle. I think you actually are being dishonest. You know there's a difference here, and you're trying to clever sleight of hand to make yourself feel better. Everyone should share the gospel. It doesn't belong to elders. Actually, it's specifically, like, yeah, elders preach the gospel to their people, but even the work of conversion, I'm sorry, what I'm looking for is evangelism, is specifically not just given to elders. We need everybody. In the evangelism world, if the church is going to be effective, you want us to just do it by ourselves? We got a problem. We got to have everybody doing the work of evangelism in their communities. It's not the same thing as being an elder. Next, in their post. Yes, there are biblical debates about this issue and a lot of proof texting. Yeah, that's what we're doing. We're not doing something systematic from the beginning of Genesis and the order of things. A lot of proof texting scriptures to support one's argument. But if you read the Gospels and read the totality of Paul's epistles, you will be hard-pressed to conclude that Jesus doesn't include women in the charge to preach and teach the good news. Okay, hold on. That word preach is a little testy. But you're not going to get an argument from me that, yeah, if I read the Gospels and Paul's epistles, no, I don't have any, uh, any compunction about women preaching the good news. I, excuse me, teaching the good news. I want them to do it. Give me some ladies who want to learn theology, learn the scriptures, and teach others. Oh, I'm in. And then we'll give the right context, the biblical context, for them to teach. I'd, I'd love to have that. I, I see it in other churches. I see it in some churches I really admire. They're women's teaching ministries, and it is women teaching women. Awesome. Cool. Good, good way to help people who have gifts to do that. That's great. You are, again, I don't know if you're doing it on purpose. You are diluting, colluding, one of those two words, the idea of eldership, which is generally teaching true things. They're not the same. I hate this argument. Last paragraph. It was, after all, women who first witnessed Jesus' resurrection and were told by Jesus to go and tell others. Yeah. Do you think that's church eldership? It's utterly meaningless to your argument. They're two, the two things aren't connected. Go and tell people Jesus is alive. One thing. Here's another thing. Lead with a plurality of other people a flock of God. Not the same, First Baptist of Clemson. And this is terribly, just terribly messy thinking all together. I, I'm a, I don't want you going to their page and commenting on it. I, I just wanted to bring it up because it is bad thinking. They have already been removed from the convention. When I first saw it, I was like, all right, let's go to town. I, I, did, I didn't. Maybe this is bad. Tell me if you think it is. 
I thought immediately, we need to make an example of them. We are going to be serious about the faithfulness to this calling of the scriptures about who's an elder. First Baptist Clemson needs to be made example of. But when I went and looked, they've already been made example of, and they don't care. They're just off doing their their thing. And they're in danger. I would say that. I probably don't have any people listening to me who go to First Baptist Clemson. But if you are one of those people moving to the upstate, if you know people moving to the upstate, they start visiting that place, warn them against it. They are not serious about what the Bible teaches, about leadership, headship, roles of men and women. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture the Lord gives us about the roles for men and women. And eldership isn't one of them for, for women. There's beauty to behold. And we want to warn people against getting in to those places. All right, final thing here. I forgot to tell you, again, as I'm supposed to do before every topic I'm supposed to tell you. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads. Find me, Corey Truax. Look for my weird name. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I have been finishing the show lately with various laws that people struggle, or with which people struggle. I want to get back into some of the slavery ones later, in part because they're complicated, and I came with the plan to do one today, but I don't think I'm quite ready to do you justice, to serve you well, and give you the full picture of what God's law is doing. So instead of me being half-baked and not, uh, by half-baked, I do like literally mean you put in a cake and you half-bake it, you didn't let it finish. Like I'm right now, I'm not finished. I'm not finished baking in the in the argument where I'm going to be good at it. So I want to give you one I'm a little bit better at. Here's one I have seen people struggle with over the years. Deuteronomy 21, starting at verse 18. Here is what the Word of God says. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, right? So that right now, that if you're an English reader, that could be ambiguous because a stubborn and rebellious son could be a six-year-old and it could be a 26-year-old, could be somewhere in between, all right? So I don't, know, I don't know yet. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, did you hear that? Equality amongst honor for father and mother? If he's not listening to his father, or if he's not listening to his mother because his mother shares authority with the father, and though they discipline him, though father and mother are together putting discipline to this son, I didn't say child, listen to me, didn't say child, I said son, he, he will not listen to them. Verse 19, if that's the case, they have a stubborn, rebellious son, they tried to discipline him, and he won't change, then his father and mother shall take hold of him, the son, and bring the son out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. The gate of any city is where judicial and business proceedings took place. So they're taking them to basically the courthouse. They're taking them to where official business happens in Israel. And they, the parents, shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our, obey our voice. Key here. He is a, glut, a glutton and a drunkard. What, can, what are you probably not if you're six? A drunkard. What are you probably not if you're 16? A drunkard. We're probably, not probably, we are dealing with an adult of some age, maybe a teenager, someone who has developed the ability to know right and wrong, has been taught right and wrong, has been disciplined towards right and wrong, knows what they're supposed to do, but this person is a glutton, 
He takes from others. He doesn't produce anything. We're living in a, remember their context, we're in a wilderness in a desert. Every drop of water, every resource is, pre- is, is precious. I'm looking around at my family, my other sons and daughters. I'm looking around at their cousins and their aunts and uncles, and I'm responsible to make sure everybody in my clan and my family has what they need. And this stubborn, rebellious son of mine takes and never produces. He's a drunkard. He's prop- What do you do when you're drunk? You do more destructive things. He is destroying life for everyone in the family. Everyone is affected by him, and he will not change. He also, I suspect this is the case, he'll keep coming around. He won't go. If you're, gonna, if you're going to be this glutton and drunkard, you don't have the, uh, let's go with, ambition to go make your own way. You're just, you're just a sap on everybody. Well, then verse 21, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall, shall hear and fear. Now, a couple other points on this. If you can't see that as just, I would challenge you just to ask if your, if your worldview might just be a little too Western. I think we often don't think enough about the victims of people and we think about the victimizer. Because we have that preloaded idea, well, something bad happened to them. They're being a victimizer because they might have been victimized. It's not their fault that they've turned out this way. But even in this setting, we're talking about someone who's had discipline. They've been told they know right right and wrong, and they're just rebellious and stubborn. They're not going to do it. This is a situation where they tried to fix someone, and he just won't. Now, I think this is also... I think this is important. I can't tell you that this never happened in Israel. But there is some significance that we don't have any case law on it. It doesn't appear in the narrative that it ever does happen. It, I mean, at the end there, the, uh, the evil being purged from your midst. It, it, it is almost as if, I'm, I'm not saying it never happened. It, this might have happened in Israel. But the command itself might have been the purpose to say, we are going to take this seriously. Play your role, young man. Play, play your role in your, in your family. We need you. you. You need them and they need you. It's, it's also kind of a statement about support. But the, family is the, the family is going to be the disciplinary actor. And when you go to, let's go the state, the larger governance, the governance is saying to the parents, we support you. You know, we 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 know your clan your your clan your family needs to be preserved and this person is causing damage to the rest of your clan. But this if this drunkard and glutton continues doing what he does, he could cost someone else their lives. So I don't know if it ever happened in Israel. It's not recorded. But the law points to this. The family the family unit is integral. If they, it even points towards giving some people grace. Getting discipline after discipline after discipline for years is such a grace to be invited into doing what you're supposed to do. There's also some things you could argue from silence, but I don't want to argue from silence about maybe some other options there. All right, I'm going to finish there. If you have thoughts on or or a law you've seen in the Bible that you want to challenge me with or you want to just ask humbly, hey, what's going on here? Because this one's weird. Send them to me. I'm trying to get into that world right now and be, and, and be good at explaining those hard things. 
I think that's all I got this week. You can reach me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads. Find me, Corey Truax. I hope that you will. If you'd be so kind, write, rate and review the show. It helps other people find it. You can also share it on social media. That's always helpful. Thank you for listening to the show. I'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.